If you have your Bibles this morning, please turn to Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40. And as you turn there, you're, turn there, you will recognize that that's the last chapter in Exodus. So this is our last week in Exodus. As we turn there together, let us pray that the Lord would, would teach us yet again. Father, we're grateful that you have taken a people who were ignorant and unaware of what you had done. And through our lives, you have been making us aware. You've been giving us the scripture. You've teach uh, and taught us about Jesus. And we're thankful that through the book of Exodus that you have not left us just to consider Old Testament things, but how it propelled us towards Jesus and actually affects us here and today. And so, Lord, we pray that again today that you would teach us from these ancient texts in a fresh way of what you're doing in our lives. We pray that your spirit would do the work of of opening our ears and our eyes to hear and to see what you have for us today. I pray that you would take my mind and my heart and my lips and have me only to speak what you've ordained for this day. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Exodus chapter 40. You know, today uh, I wanted to tell you a story about a, a, uh, a man named Magnus. And uh, he'd actually grown up in England. And his uh, grandfather was a priest. His dad was a part of the church. And at 16 years old, this young man was kidnapped. And he was taken into slavery for six years uh, up from far and away. And, and there he was in slavery, having this really hard life, doing things like shepherding and different things off in, in the wilderness. And after six years, through that time, he actually was able to escape get back on a boat and go back down to England. And, and what happened uh, was obviously a, a really difficult situation where he was snatched from his family and his place and taken to a, a far off land that he didn't know. And yet in that place, he recognized later that while he was out there as a slave, as a shepherd in a place of wilderness, that God had actually done something magnificent in his life to make God a reality. And it was through those experiences in the wilderness that God had opened his eyes to the reality of who he was. And once he had gotten back to England, his heart was changed and he became a Christian. And his name uh, was Patrick. Magnus was actually St. Patrick. He became then so inspired by what God had done for him that he went back into the same uh, similar area where he had been a slave to go and change those people into Christians by telling the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's the story of St. Patrick. Had little to do with leprechauns and and, uh, rainbows with, with gold pots at the end of it. It was all about Jesus having changed the young man and brought him to faith. And then he went and, and uh, spread the gospel in Ireland. And that's, that's the story of Patrick. And what I love about that story is that God, even in the midst of a difficult circumstance where he was taken away and into the wilderness, that God used the wilderness period in Patrick's life in order to display for him how awesome he is. And use that to bring him into a relationship with God whereby he was a believer. And I bring that up because... We are with Israel, why they have been taken out of Egypt, what was what they knew, out of slavery. And now they're in the wilderness on the way to what was called a promised land. But God is doing something significant in the wilderness, which was difficult. Remember, the wilderness, there wasn't the Carly C's IGA where you could just go buy groceries. They had to rely every day on God to bring them bread onto the, the floor of the desert where they'd scoop it up and have their daily bread. They needed water, and so God brought it from a rock. They needed meat, and so God brought quail. They, their clothes did not wear out. I mean, it wasn't simple, but every day God was using the time of the wilderness to display who he was, his care, and his provision, but also through all this, preparing them for this relationship, this covenant that he would have with them 
and ultimately to point forward to Jesus. So we're going to look at how all those intertwine even today in our story recently. We've been talking about how when the covenant was given the first time on the stone tablets, as Moses came down the mountain, they were worshiping the golden calf, dancing around, having fun. And that covenant was smashed. Literally, the rocks were broken. The tablets were broken. So Moses has gone back up on the mountain and he's getting the, 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 the covenant and it's renewed on tablets. And he comes back and he's been told, hey, you need to build this tabernacle, this tent that will be a worship center where God will be in the midst of his people. And so he's been he's gotten instruction ex- exactly what it's to look like because he's following the pattern of the heavenly uh, dwelling place of God. And so he was told what to make. And then recently they got to work making it. They're building this tabernacle and God's given them skill, in fact, providing his Holy Spirit uh, to help this process. And so they've been building all these things. And then we get to the last chapter where they have all these items ready. And Moses takes these items and God tells him, it says in Exodus chapter 40, verse one, the Lord spoke to Moses saying on the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And then if you would go down to verse 16, this Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him. So he did in the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. And so God says, hey, here's all the items. Now I want you to set them up. So it tells us right there that Moses did that according to all God had showed him, all that God had 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 him to and the, the others to make. He went and he began to, to, to put up the tent. Like when you go out camping and you brought the, the tent with you, you got to put it up. And so that's what Moses did. But it says that he did it on the first day of the second year on the first day of the month. So what that means is when you track backwards in Exodus, it's been one year. Since they've come out, it was in the first month on the 14th day when there had been Passover, when there when they had been in Egypt. So it's been about a year now that they've been extracted from Egypt. They've been at Mount Sinai for nine months. And I want to bring up the point of of the fact that this is the first month and the first day, because when you look at the Jewish calendar, that's coming up in just a few days. It would have been right now. And I never planned these things to work out exactly like this, but I just think it's phenomenal that more often than not, when we're reading through the scripture and God brings us a particular day at a particular time, some, for some reason, we're actually usually in that period of time. And as we go through this chapter today, it's coming up on the 20th, the evening of the 20th, going into the 21st of March, that that'll be the first, first day of the first month of the Jewish calendar, uh, according to the ancient Jewish calendar. So pretty cool that we're kind of sitting in the exact time that Moses would have been erecting this thing. And so he, he does it. He puts it all together. And if we go towards the end of the chapter in verse 33, at the end of verse 33, it says, so Moses finished the work. Verse 34 says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys. Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. 
And so Moses did it. He puts it up. He puts exactly what it was talked about. There was the outer curtain and then there was an inner curtain and then the most holy place in the middle. He put up the furniture. He did it just as. And as he gets it erected on that first day, there comes the cloud of God's glory. Now, previously, the people had seen that up on the mountain. That's where Moses went up the mountain to meet with God. But now it's come off the mountain and it's no longer just going to be staying stationary at the mountain, but it comes and dwells in the midst of the people at the tabernacle, at the tent, in the most holy place. And there it was. They could see it in the cloud. They could see his glory in the fire. And they knew that God was present among them. And it says when that cloud would lift up, that was time to pick up the tent, pull up the stakes, pack it all up, and go to where the cloud leads them. And when the cloud stops, that's where you put the tent. And the cloud would come back on that tabernacle, and he would dwell in among them. And did you notice who saw it? It says there in the very last verse, the very last phrase, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And so if you were a part of Israel, and you, you might not be the high priest, but you knew God's glory was in your midst. You could watch him come into the middle of your people and lead you and guide you and provide for you. And you knew that he had done that to bring you into relationship with you. And you would suspect that if you were part of the house of Israel and you had seen all of that, because that's what it says, you would suspect that, man, I would follow that God. You would think. That's not really what happened. Sadly, even though God was in their midst, that generation of people denied God, did not listen to God, and they hardened their hearts. And in the end, they proved that they didn't want him at all. And we're going to see what happened to them. But I want to bring about something that's more critical is that God's intention wasn't that he would be living in a tent among his people for forever. And later on, they take that tent and they say they brought it up to Jerusalem. They say, we don't want God to live in a tent anymore. Let's build a temple. So they built the temple. And yet God's intention was not to live in a temple. He has something better in mind. And so I want to go with this. You know how we talk about how Exodus in the Old Testament, it's all pointing forward to Jesus. And this is so cool how this does this. So let's turn to John chapter one. Now, this is many, 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 many centuries after Moses and after he's erected this tabernacle, this tent, this dwelling place, which is what tabernacle means. Uh, and, and, and this is many years after that. And yet God's intention was to bring about a way of salvation. It wasn't through this old covenant because the old covenant meant it was all on you. You had to do the Ten Commandments. You had to not lie. You had to do everything right, but you and I couldn't do that. So it's no good when it's up to us. That covenant's not going to work. We need a new covenant that's based on something better. And that was what God was bringing through Jesus, that we would have a relationship with God through Jesus. And so if we go back to John chapter 1, John is writing about Jesus, God become flesh. And we pick it up in verse 14. Now, Jesus was referred to as the word. And so in verse 14, it says, and the word, which is Jesus, and the word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. Now, that just looks like an English word that says dwelt. But if you looked at the word in the Greek, the word that's being used there is tabernacled. 
Now think about that in the context of what had just happened in Exodus when the tent was erected and God came and brought his glory and put it right in the midst of the people and he tabernacled in their midst in the wilderness. Now fast forward to what God really wants to do through Jesus. It says that God, the word, became flesh. And it says, and he dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. He made his dwelling place so that people could come into contact with him. It was no longer about a tent. It was about a man. It was about God living among his people. In fact, one guy said it this way. He came and he lived in the neighborhood. That he was no longer distant. He wasn't just left in his throne room. But when God saw us in our need and we yet as sinners, that God sent himself and he took up a dwelling and he lived among people. He dwelt, he tabernacled among the people. And how did it work? Let's look at this. It says, and he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Remember that had been a cloud and a fire in the wilderness, but now they see Jesus glory. What did that look like? It looked like miracles. It looked like forgiveness. It looked like teaching with authority and not just being religious, but bringing grace. And look, look how he says it. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of what? Grace and truth. See, that works. That marks the work of God. God's not all about just truth. And God's not just all about just grace. Whenever it's a work of God and with Jesus, it's full of grace and truth. And so there was Jesus. He was full of grace and truth. This glory of God, it's been seen. If you will, go with me to verse 16. It says, for from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Now, remember, the law, because we can't keep it, that just brings death. It doesn't help anybody to be saved. For the law was given through Moses, he says, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one's ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So God says this, this, this covenant whereby these rules, you're not going to be able to do it. That's not going to save you can't be saved through rules and religiousness. So I will send myself and I will dwell among you and I will show you what it is to have full grace and full truth. And he lived among this and he would care for the poor. And he would heal the blind and the leper. And he would sit with the Samaritan woman who had been in adultery and he would he would care for her in a spiritual way, saying, I will give you living water whereby you will thirst no more. And she was saved and he would care for people on that grace and truth basis. And as the crowd saw Jesus, they said, we got to be near him. We want to eat some of the bread that he's making. We want to we want to drink some of the wine that he made of the wedding. And they they crowded around him. But as they got near to God and they realized just who he was and what he was saying, they said, wait, wait a second. We're not sure that we actually know that. And it got to a point where even though Jesus had shown them so much of himself with his grace and his truth and his love and his authority and all these things that were displaying himself living among them, tabernacling them. And they said, no longer we do want you, but crucify him, crucify him. And they took and they crucified him on a cross. They did not want him. The scripture says that three days later, though, he came back to life. And now he sits in the throne in heaven, still bringing his grace and truth through the gospel. It wasn't about a wilderness and its tent. It's about God coming and being with his people. And Jesus was the fullness of that, as John says. And so as Jesus resurrects and he goes and he's on high and there's now this message of Jesus and all he is, you would think, man, people have 
heard of his miracles. They've, they've heard of his truth. They've heard of his death. They've heard of his resurrection. Certainly people will want him now. But just as God is consistent in his love and his holiness and his truth and his grace, so are people in their sin and their wickedness. Just as the people of Israel said, even though we've seen the glory in our midst and all the miracles of the manna, we don't want you. Even as the people saw Jesus and he had healed the blind, and they heard his teaching, they said, we want to crucify you. And so even as Jesus sits in the throne on high and his gospel goes out, still people say, we don't want you. And as the message went to the Jews, they approached some of these topics. One of the early Christians, his name was Stephen. He was one of the deacons early on, one of the first seven deacons. And so if you would, if you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter Seven. Now, after helping uh, in his deacon role to feed people, he actually got up one day and gave a sermon because people didn't like what he was saying about Jesus. So he gave them a Jesus sermon. And he talks about the time in the wilderness. He talks about when the Jews had been in the wilderness and there was a tabernacle and then later on a temple. And, and listen to what Stephen says. In chapter seven of verse 44, Stephen preaches. Our fathers, so that's the people, the Jews out in the wilderness, our fathers had the tent of witness. That means it was supposed to speak about God and all that he was. They had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in. That's the tabernacle, brought it in with Joshua when they disposed of the nations that God drove out before our fathers. That would have been in the promised land. And so it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. And yet, so consider this. He has said, hey, the people, our fathers, they had the tent and then they had a temple and Solomon and David were all part of it. And yet, critical word, and yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house are you going to build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And so Stephen in his argument is saying, it's not about the earthly tent and it's not about this earthly tabernacle. It is about Jesus. Because what are we going to build for him? What are we going to make for him? He made everything. And so he doesn't... He doesn't got to live in these things. He lives in the throne room on high. What are we going to do for him? Now, look where he comes in verse 51. You stiff necked people. Uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. The people in the wilderness. They didn't listen. The people who heard Jesus didn't listen. And now that as Jesus followers are preaching about Jesus, Stephen says, you stiff necked people, you're just like your fathers. You don't listen. When the Holy Spirit is coming to speak and saying, God has made a way for you to draw near to him and you don't want him. But the reality of God is he's going to change everything for you. When you come into a relationship with God, it changes Everything with you and you're not listening. I was talking to a young father recently. And he said, you know, what? I had no idea. I had no idea when our baby was born that it changes everything. You parents know exactly what he's talking about, right? 
You're going along and you're in your marriage and you think we're going to have a baby and it's going to be easy. I mean, there's going to be dirty diapers and there's going to be feedings and all those things. But you don't realize that when you have a baby, your entire schedule is about to change. You don't realize when you have a baby, the way that you perceive everything in the world is going to change. Because no longer was it when it has a red hand and that means don't walk, but I'm good enough. I can just walk now. It's like, no, you stop. It changes the perspective of everything in the world. It changes relationships. It changes how. And so a baby changes everything, doesn't it? And that's what happened when the word became flesh, literally became a baby. It changed everything. And when you come into contact with God and he 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 gives his gospel, you have to hear it because he's desiring to change everything. He's going to change you into a new person. He's going to change the way that you see the world, including your schedule, the way you parent, the way you go to school. Everything changes. And as we come to the Lord, it's important for us to recognize that it is all about him. And why are we talking about all these things? Why do we bring up the people in the wilderness? And the scripture says. The people of Israel in the wilderness served as an example for us. So we don't make the same mistakes. And why is that critical? I would love for you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter three. Hebrews chapter three. Now, the book of Hebrews was being written to Jews. Being written to people who had heard the old story about Moses and the tabernacle, heard about the covenant and all that, heard about the Ten Commandments and all that was there. And yet this book is being written to people to say, I want want to warn you, I want to warn you. And there's a good reason why. In Hebrews chapter three, starting in verse 12. This is what the writer is imploring these Jews and for us also uh, to listen, it says, take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So what was the writer saying? Hey, we better pay attention here. The thing. It happened out in the wilderness and what happened with those people. We need to take heart because it says here we don't want anyone to be led away from falling away from the living God. It says here that there's the uh, our hearts might be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What does that mean? That's a big phrase to kind of chew on. That none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Well, first of all, deceitfulness means like a lying, like a tricking, right? Sin does that. Sin tricks you, and as you continue to be tricked, you become hardened to what God is trying to say to you and do to you. It happens with all of us. And so as you sin and maybe you get away with it, you think, no ramifications there. I I stole something, got away with it, let me steal again, and we get hardened to it. We cheat on something, I didn't get caught, let me cheat again. You know any of y'all like a hot tub? Getting into that hot tub? I, I I like a good hot tub, but you know, when I first come up to a hot tub, and maybe you do the same thing, when you put your foot in, how's that feel? Ah! It almost hurts, right? You put your you put your toe in, you're like, oh, that hurts, and and you dip it in, you pull it out, and you kind of look at your toe and you say, well, it's still there. Didn't didn't hurt so bad. So you you stick it in again for a little longer, and then you kind of have to pull it out. Still alive. 
So you slowly put your whole foot in. And slowly your whole body begins to creep into this water. And it takes a little bit because at first there's pain there. But after a while, you're completely consumed by that hot tub. Right? Some of you are like, I'm about to leave right now and go enjoy a hot tub. But the reason I bring that up is this. Sin works the exact same way. The first time you do something, there's the, ow! It's painful. And sin leads to death. But then when you recognize, well, maybe it didn't hurt so bad. You put a little bit more in for a little longer. And pretty soon the deceitfulness of sin has you putting your whole body, your whole self into the harm's way of sin. This says, do not let yourself get to the place where you are so hardened, where you are sitting in the hot tub of sin. You don't even realize the fact that you're boiling. Why would he be given this plea except that he is pleading with people to say, I don't want you to fall away from the living God. And what does that mean? If you fall away from the living God, it means that you are in trouble. Because if you are not dwelling in the midst of the living God, you are apart from him. And the descriptions of being apart from him are you being destroyed for eternity. His plea is that you be saved. His plea is that you listen. His plea is that we wouldn't think that, well, not surely not me. All the sins out there. This is dealing with our heart. This is dealing with me. And it goes on and says in verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ if for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the what to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And so as the writer in Hebrews goes on, he says, hey, hey, we need to listen because this sin thing is a serious issue. It's going to kill you. And he quotes and says, today, if you hear the spirit, don't harden your heart as they did in the rebellion. Because the scripture says they were all destroyed. But he says, you got to listen to the spirit for, he says, who was it that heard the message? And who was it that all of them left Egypt with Moses? And it says, was it not all those? Wasn't it all those verse 17? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned? And then look what happened to that whole generation whose bodies fell in the wilderness. You have to take heed. Because it says about Exodus that they all came out of Egypt, and they were in that wilderness, that, that whole entire generation that came out, all of them were on the desert floor dead. But save a couple, we know that Joshua and Caleb made it in. And the kids of that generation made it in. Well, what went wrong? I mean, they, this was the people that saw the ten plagues. These were the people that saw the Red Sea part and they walked through on dry land. They looked back and they saw all the Pharaoh's army dead. These were the people that when they needed fed day by day had manna that was given to them. That when they needed water, it came from the rock. When they needed clothes, they just didn't wear out. They saw the miracles of God and they saw the glory descend on that tabernacle. And they saw, it says they all saw it. And they all died. 
Why? Because they did not listen. And it was the way that they listened. Look at Hebrews verse 18 and chapter 3. And, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter. Why? Because of their disbelief. They never believed. They never had faith. They saw and they heard and they have a covenant and he was in their midst and they never believed. They never wanted him. And so they made it out of slavery and then they died on the desert floor. And where did they not make it? They never entered the rest. They never got to the promised land. They never made it to the finish. They never made it into relationship with God. And so the writers, whether it's Stephen preaching or the writer of Hebrews or whoever, they always say, take heed and watch what happened. Because even though God was working in their midst and even though they came to a sanctuary and even though they saw his glory, whether it was at the tabernacle, whether it was Jesus in the body or the testimony of the gospel, you better listen, because if you don't, it's certain death. You have to believe you have to believe. You have to believe. Gospel has to come and continue to work on us like a jackhammer. Because the hardness of sin, the hardness of sin, it's it's deceitful. It will lie to you. It'll think you can get away with it. It'll think, oh, yeah, I can go along with this and I will make it. No, if you're not with Jesus. If he has not started that work in you and that proves to complete to the end, beware, beware. Why do I preach hard from here? Paul told Timothy, Timothy, preach these things, preach the word because it'll save you and your hearers. I don't want anybody to be lost. And the scripture says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness and they never made it to the rest. You have a better chance of making it. With a four leaf clover. Than with just doing religion. And just being in a tabernacle. And just seeing but never believing. Lord says unless there's faith. There's no shamrock. There's no religiousness. Unless there's faith in Jesus. There's no salvation. The people came out of the exodus. And they went through a trying time in the wilderness. And it proved that they never believed. They never loved God. And in the things that you go through, there's going to be hard times. God's going to use those to try to get your attention, try to jackhammer the hardness of the deceitfulness of your sin. To get you to listen. And our prayer is at some point your heart may be soft to say, OK, I'll listen today. Lord, save me. That's all it took for the people in the wilderness. Lord, save me. I can't do it. I can't do these commandments. I can't be religious enough. I need you. And he'll allow even the hard parts, circumstances of life to wake you up and to bring you into salvation and then use you for great purposes. Like a young man named Magnums. I can't even say his name right, who became Patrick. The Lord used his time of slavery to display himself in his glory. Eventually, he came to faith. And what did he do with that? He went and tried to convert everybody he could. 
Listen to Jesus. Listen to how good he is. That he loves you. He's full of grace and truth. And God's desire is that you would be saved. His desire is that I would be saved. We need to believe. We need to listen. Today, if the Lord's calling on you, I don't know what's been going on. I don't know where your whole track has been with Jesus. But I know that he wants that path to go straight to that cross. Maybe not literally this piece of wood right here. He wants you to come to Jesus and just say, I surrender. I need you. I want you. Lord, help my ears to hear spiritually what the Holy Spirit is saying. Please save me. Maybe today you need to cry out. Maybe you've lived churchiness. Maybe you've grown up in a Christian family. Maybe you're young and you think, well, I'm, I'm still young. I've got, I've got to, I'll do it later. Don't wait till later. Today, come to the Lord and say, Lord, would you please save me? Lord, help me to believe. Help me to listen. The book of Hebrews goes on to describe that everything on this earth will be shaken, destroyed. But there's one thing that will stand. God's kingdom with a king on his throne. And those who have believed will be in that kingdom and live forever. And that is the rest that was promised. The promised land with God in his kingdom for forever. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts like they did in the wilderness. Believe and be saved. He loves you. He really does.